okay. I'm trying to remember. They just interrupt me if I say something wrong. Okay. I mean, you will anyway. Of course, so. I will, and I'll delight uh, in it. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know you will. Horrible man. <laughs> okay. Hello, and welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode 97, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. Um, which is a lot of episodes, actually. Three episodes till our 100th anniversary. I know. And anniversary is maybe not the right word. But yes, it was... <laughs> Uh, can we not say anniversary? Isn't it always years if it's anniversary? Well, I'm going to say that it's episodes. Okay. So <laughs> fine. I'm I'm taking the word and I'm using it in this way. Um, and today <laughs> we are going to be spending the first half um, talking about prepared or planned reading versus spontaneous reading. Mm-hmm. That will we'll explain more fully momentarily. And in the second half, we're going to be comparing two books by E.M. Delafield, who is a is a big favourite of both of, our, yeah. of ours, uh, famous for the Provincial Lady series. Um, and those are Tension, uh, which is a new publication by the British women British Library Women Writers, which Simon is the series consultant for. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And um, Thank Heaven Fasting, which was published by Virago, republished by Virago, but I think is currently not in print. I think it's with um, Bloomsbury, the sort of print-on-demand ones. But, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you have read Thank Heaven Fasting after the text I got from you this week saying, are we doing consequences <laughs> or the way things are? I was like, we are doing neither <laughs> of those books. <laughs> well, it's a good job I checked. It's a very good job we checked. <laughs> This is the level of organisation that is typical of us. So, <laughs> well, of me more than you. But, yeah. So, um, Simon, how are you? And what are you reading? I think I saw that you went to Hale and Wye yesterday. Did I happen? did. So, at the time of recording, it's the 1st of August, and I was in Hale and Wye yesterday, and it was wonderful. Oh. Uh, I. I have been to bookshops since the pandemic, uh, more in the last sort of month or, or so. But uh, but felt, going back to Hanway felt like a proper back to the back to the world of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came away with seventeen books, oh. <laughs> um, some of which were very. I mean, it was very heavy. I couldn't really hold the bag anymore. I was <laughs> clutching, sort of over, overflowing. So was was this from yeah. several shops? It was from several. Most of them actually came from the cinema bookshop. Those who've been to Hay will know right. that the cinema bookshop, which is an old converted cinema which is enormous and they've had I've never been Simon never have you not we have to go we have to go you keep promising to take me and it hasn't happened so, uh, sorry I should have invited you yeah, um, <laughs> it, yeah and they the cinema bookshop was, is cheaper than some of the others and they had really good range so I came away with books by um uh, F. Tennyson Jesse some detective, detective short stories that I didn't know she written detective oh. short stories uh, I had some by Mrs. Alfred Sidgwick, who I enjoy, whom I enjoy. Uh, a novel by Joanna Cannon. Oh, um, that's a good find. Yeah, I looked it up in, in, online afterwards, and so the cheapest online is like £200, and mine costs four, <gasps> four pounds. Same. Gosh. Great. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll put smug. it in the notes. I know. I was so <laughs> smug. I was, I, I was very excited about a book called A Mouse, A Lion, no, The Lion, the Mouse, and the Motor Car by Dorothea Townsend that Scott at Furred Middlebrow. Oh, I saw that on Twitter, yeah. And he put, this is, there's no copies available anywhere in the world. And I thought, well, it sounds great, but I'll clearly never get to read it. And there it was, waiting for me. <gasps> it was meant to be. 
It was. And I also bought two very rare EM Delafields that were not not cheap. But, but uh, the glass wall Sometimes and love has no restriction. I was trying to think to myself, it's just a tank of petrol, but, but it's going to yeah. last me the rest of my life. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, yeah, yeah it was so. wonderful. And I stayed in Hay and Y, actually, in an Airbnb right in the centre. Oh, lovely. It was really lovely, but I was warned, and I should have taken more warning, more heedance of this, that the clock in the centre chimes throughout the night. <laughs> so that, oh. that was um, something. But it was lovely to be to be there, nonetheless. Oh, I'm so glad. Thanks. And the books I'm... I'm going to mention a couple books I'm reading. Um, okay. If that's all right. I'm reading my first Jeanette Winterson. Oh. Um, the Gap of Time, which is from that time when a bunch of authors were rewriting Shakespeare plays. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And this is based on uh, A Winter's Tale. Or The Winter's Tale. I never remember which which articles they have. And it's very good. I'm really enjoying it. It's not at all what I expected from Jeanette Winterson. It's a lot more sort of playful than I imagined she'd be for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I must confess, I've never actually read anything by her apart from the odd bits of you know, writing here and there, um, you know, not like a whole mm, mm. book. Um, but my colleague at work absolutely adores her and she's always wanted me to read, so I, I will. Yeah, it's a very good um, modernising of The Winter's Tale. I'm impressed. So, and I know the play pretty well, but there is also it does also include a summary of what happens in the play at the beginning for those who don't. Well, I mean, all of us can get our Shakespeare confused. Well, exactly. Um yes. Uh, and the other one I wanted to mention, I'm just reading um, The Other Side of the Bridge by Mary Lawson. Have you read any never Mary heard Lawson? No, never heard. So I read Crow Lake, maybe 2007, 2008, and really liked that, and bought this around then. And I've finally got to it, but she's just been longlisted for the booker, or maybe shortlisted, uh, with whatever her most recent book is called, I forget. And it and seeing that made me think, oh, I should get that book off my shelf. And it's, it reminds me a bit of Barbara Kingsolver, um, although it's Canadian rather than American. It's set right in the in the north of Canada. Uh, and it's in this small farming community. And some of it is in two different timelines in the late 30s and I think maybe the late 50s, early mm-hmm. 60s. Uh, and it's very well observed about um, small communities and how there can be s- small moments or frustrations that just echo throughout the the years and even the generations in, in a place where not many people come or go um it's really beautiful writing i'm really enjoying it oh that sounds really interesting yeah i would recommend um Hi. how are you and what are you reading i'm good thank you i'm having a lovely time um just chilling out um i don't know if i've said before but um i quit my job so i am no longer a teacher um as of three weeks ago Mm -hmm. and this is therefore not just the summer holiday but it it is for the time being just what i'm doing um because i don't have another job to go to professional um, podcaster now professional podcaster (laughs) Um, so yes, I'm just uh, relaxing and I have read quite a lot. I've been um, on holiday, went to Devon for a couple of weeks. So and very luckily coincided with the all too brief heatwave <laughs> that we had that's yes. now disappeared completely and has descended into the usual summer of rain that we have. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I was in um, a national trust. I was actually Agatha Christie's house in uh, Devon. I tried Green to get Lane. there last October and it was closed due to high winds. Well, it is, yeah. There are a lot of trees and also it's 
yeah, it's quite um, precariously situated. The car mm. park is a, is a tricky, tricky mister to get into. Oh my god! Um, yeah, and um, the they have a very good secondhand bookshop there, and I picked up a couple of very nice Angela Circles mm. um, that I'd never read before. And but everybody, you know, always says the type of thing they like. Claire, uh, um, uh, give me Captive Reader. Thank you. Yes, Claire yeah. at Captive Reader. I was always talking about it, and you know, everything Claire reads, I trust her taste um, absolutely. So I thought, well, if Claire thinks she's good, I'm, I must enjoy her. And they had these lovely old hardbacks that were like, you know, ten p each or something ridiculous. So I thought, well, why not? I'll give it a go. Um, and I hated them, Simon. Oh no! That's not where I thought that was going to go. No. Um, do you remember? I mean, what, I do you remember what they were? Well, yes, and I did look them up, and it seems that unfortunately I I didn't pick the best of of her work. So yeah. I read Miss Bunting, which I was enjoying until the characters just became so insufferably snobby. I couldn't handle it. Mm. Um, and then I had uh, Love at All Ages, which, again, I was just like, I can't get into this. Mm. And The Duke's Daughter, which I was just like, I'm not, I'm not feeling these at all. Though when I did some research online, it did seem to be that the very early ones are the best ones. So I'm not averse. I thought her writing was very good. I just didn't like the, the, the tone. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I'm, I've read four or five, I think. And I, then I read, a, a few years ago, I started one, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a later one, and I gave up, and I thought it was terrible. And it there does seem to be a consensus that the, the later they are, the worse they are. Yeah, so I mean, I basically picked the worst ones I could have chosen for <laughs> yeah. the selection that was available, so never mind. But I, it hasn't put me off, because as I say, I did think she was a very good writer. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the early ones are ten a penny, so in, in charity shops yeah, around this yeah, way yeah. anyway. So I'll try some more. So I, I, I gave up on those, but I um I finally finished reading, which I've been reading for a long time. Um Festival at Farbridge, which is a JB Priestley novel. I've never read a JB Priestley novel before. Mm. Um I've read most of his plays and um I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It's very oh, long, but it's so um 1950s it's just brilliant and it's basically set around uh, a town putting on their own festival of britain so when the festival of britain was happening in the 50s uh, the arts council gave money to towns to put on their own festival within their own community basically mm. so while it was happening in london people who weren't in london would be able to have access to cultural activities too um, and it's about the the farcical nature of um you know local petty bureaucracy and everything of, of putting on a show and it's just wonderful there's loads of characters um and after a while it doesn't you know but there is a handy glossary at the back <laughs> oh, <get> right. <laughs> it's one of those but i thought it was wonderful and it's very um kind of undemanding cheerful reading where everything happens that you want to happen and everybody gets what they deserve and if you just want to enjoy yourself and not have to really think for 600 pages, then it's <laughs> highly recommended. So I love that. And I'm currently reading a book that's very different, um, which is The Authority Gap, which has just come out called by Marianne Seacott. It's a nonfiction book about the, about sexism basically and about how women are taken less seriously than men in all aspects of life and why that happens and what we can do about it and it's predictably i mean i uh, nothing in the book surprises me but um their statistics are fascinating to read and um 
yeah, it's it's it just adds fuel to the the feminist fire. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, or if you don't believe that there is a an, a gap in these things, as some people I know don't, um, it's very well worth reading. That's the thing. The people who should read these books are always the people who aren't no, going to read them, aren't they? <laughs> Uh, yes. It, well, I mean, the most depressing thing is how few books by women men read. So you are very much um, in the minority. This little outlier. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I did see a tweet the other day about someone t- was chatting to a man who was very proud about the fact that he didn't read anything by women, and she realised he was reading a P.D. James. So <laughs> <laughs> enjoy that. <laughs> um, is that is that uh, that book mostly about British culture or Western or the world? Um, it's it's sort of global. I mean, the statistics I think are mostly American and English. The writer's English, uh, British. She's um, former political um, correspondent with the Financial Times, mm. um, but she she's commissioned research from all around the world. So there's stuff in there that's relevant for different uh, communities as well. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to introduce the first half, being that it was your idea? I know, shocking, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so yes, the first half I was thinking about in terms of you in particular mm. are very good at reading challenges and setting up, um, reading that's kind of thematic or that encourages you to read books you wouldn't otherwise read due to having to fit them into a particular category. Mm. Whereas I am very much a, uh, spontaneous reader and don't tend to participate in challenges like that or to really plan my reading in any way I don't mean I will just you know plan anything generally um <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about those different experiences and to think about what is added to the reading experience when you've in advance kind of set a program or group together novels that will speak to each other in a way mm-hmm. that you maybe don't have when you're reading spontaneously. So what I thought we could start off with was you talking about, with asking you about how you first started doing those sorts of challenges and what was it that made you want to, to kind of structure your reading in that way. Mm, thanks. Yeah. Um, so, so some of the challenges that, um, I think you're talking about are the, the ones that da, um, that Karen and I run that are the club years where we get everyone to read books from a certain year. And then of course I've done my century of books a couple of times. Um, and I think the reason I try and either join or think of challenges broadly is to deal with the overwhelming t- uh, TBR shelves and shelves. And I get to the point where I think I've, I've got f- about 1500 books that I've not read and I don't know where to start. And it's just a way of prioritizing for me and winnowing them down. Um, though at the same time, I want to have, I don't want it to be too restrictive. So I try and join or start challenges that have some parameters, but aren't, you can only read these three books will fit. So something particularly a century of books or when I did project names, reading books of people's names in the titles, um, they're not restricting me to a certain, period well the century of books broadly is but yeah there's not just read crime novels by people from germany or something it's it's uh still a relatively wide net a bit enough variety between the books um but i um i some i just feel rather overwhelmed if i'm looking at all the books i've not read and think i don't know um 
where to start. I don't want to miss out on things in here that might be great. I don't want to waste time on books that aren't great. But um, And I also, do, I mean, I love the communal. The aspect of a lot of those are either things that other people can join in with or they are just group activities. And I love that way of... Um, it's like a book group, but not a book group, because we're not all reading the same book, but we're all participating in the same challenge. So again, I'm always looking for that sweet spot between um, planned stuff and allowing for spontaneity, because I've never really joined in group reads online. I'm in a couple of face-to-face book groups, but if anyone ever says, let's all read Middlemarch or something, I might think, oh, that sounds great, but then it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say, like, wanting to find a balance between having a kind of structure or a theme but still being able to make choices within that mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting as well because you have got many more unread books than i have and i don't mean that in a negative way yeah. just in a yeah. sort of you know you've got a much larger collection of books so i can imagine it it probably does feel quite overwhelming and i know a couple of years ago this is pre-pandemic actually gosh a different life um when i said i was going to read through my books alphabetically yeah. And I started off with very good, you know, very, very good um, willpower to do that. And I was really disciplined about it. And I was like, you know, no, I'm not going to let myself skip a book. Um, you know, I, I, that's not in the spirit of what I'm doing. Mm. But after about three months or so, I think for me, it just started to feel frustrating. So I was like, well, I don't want to read this right now. I want to read this other book I've just heard mm. about or mm. Um, actually, I've just read this book and it's reminded me of this book that's, you know, that's written by an author whose surname begins with W. So that's going to be months away. Um, and I was just like, no, I can't, I can't read like this. I can't be, be made to do structured, structured reading. Um, and that's also why I've never joined a book club because I will not be told by someone else what I have to read or have a book chosen for me by somebody else. Um, because it's just, you know, I can't, unless I've chosen it and I've been the active participant in the decision and I've, I've, I'm a very much sort of an emotional reader in that I pick books that suit how I'm feeling at a particular time. Um, and if I'm not in the right frame of mind to read the book, then I think it's not going to, I'm not going to get the benefit of it, you know, because like sometimes there can be a book that's absolutely brilliant and everybody talks about it and everyone says, Oh, it's fantastic. And you think, Oh gosh, that's right up my street. But if you're not in the right frame of mind for it, it doesn't get you at the right moment in your life, then you can read it and find nothing in it and then dismiss it and think, oh, well, that was crap. I'm not going to read that anything by that person again. And actually, if you had come at, come at it entirely spontaneously because, you know, you were on holiday and it's a sort of summary book or whatever, then you would have had a completely different experience. So I think sometimes enforced reading, certainly for for me, is kind of counter counterproductive because it ends up turning me away from stuff. Yeah, I think I, I the reason I'm in book clubs is because I love meeting and talking about books. It's, re- it's not really because I want to, to, re- to read the books we're doing usually. There's been some nice surprises, but often, almost always, I'm trying to finish the book in the hours before the meeting starts because I just haven't been able to bring myself to start it. Because, yeah, for exactly the same reason, I just wasn't in the mood. And I see the books I'm reading as a penance. I have to pay for the fun of talking <laughs> to people about books. Um, but, I mean, we've talked about this in, an, in another episode I do find that reading lots of books at once helps with that because if I'm thinking I'm not, I'm really not in the mood to read this book that I've got to read by this deadline, I think, well, I won't. I'll read, I'll read this book I want to read and I'll come back to the one that I have to read for whatever reason. Um, in it, yeah, once I'm rather than just rather than sitting sort of feeling angry on the sofa, it's like I can't, I don't, can't read any other book. 
but I also don't want to read this book, <laughs> which, um, yeah, yeah, would be frustrating. And I mean, I, sometimes I have um, made shelves of books with like I really must get to these books, but there is nothing more likely to make me never read a book than, than putting it on a shelf saying read this soon, but without an actual deadline. Because if yeah, I I'm exactly read it for book group, I will. But yeah, otherwise it's like now I want to read everything else. Yeah, I sometimes do that where I'll sort of take a pile of books out. Well, I'll take a few books out and put them in a pile and be like, right, these are the ones you've got to get to next. And then the pile is just there, you know, <laughs> three months later, the pile is still there. I've read everything else around it. Um, I think anything, there's that sort of childish um, reticence to, to do anything that you've been told to do, isn't there? Just no, like, I oh, don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> no, I won't do it. And it just sits there like an albatross. And I just think, no, I can't. I've got to... Um, I've got to be completely free to just do as I fancy. And actually, I love doing that. I love nothing better than just standing in front of my bookshelves and being like, hmm, okay, what do I feel like reading today? Mm-hmm. And one book often leads to another anyway for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll start reading something and it'll be, I don't know, set in the 1930s. And I think, oh, do you know what? I've really enjoyed reading that. And I've never read this one or I've never read that one that's also set then. And I'll read this now and whatever. And it will kind of go like that. And often I'll inter- intersperse with, non-fiction as well whereas like say for example i've just read something set during world war ii and i think do you know what i, I really don't know very much about that element I, and i've got a book about that but i've never read so well you know so it's, it's all those sorts of connections so i suppose mm. i mean there's an element of planning to my reading in the sense that i will choose books that kind of speak to maybe the one that i've read before or are a complete contrast to the one i've read before but but it's not a set um, list from you know, it's not a that. set list no i don't really do set lists in general well when other people were doing century of books a few people would go through and make their list of 100 books they were going to read and i thought if i did that it would kill the project instantly yeah. I, I, yeah. what i liked about that project particularly was i could just read what i wanted for the first half of the year and it would just naturally fill in the gaps and then it yeah. was only later in the year and i think oh, i actually need to find something from 1978 or whatever um where it became a little more restrictive but again still enough choices out there that didn't feel like i'd set myself a project i didn't want it to feel like school basically yeah no no and reading shouldn't feel like school should it you should feel able to read whatever you like i mean sometimes there's obviously you know people have certain goals i mean i know i've read online before where people were going through periods of time in their lives where things were, were challenging or difficult and they decided i want to I want to read the classics. I want to mm-hmm. educate myself, and and that's going to be my motivation. It's a bit like that um Julie and Julia mm-hmm. uh, film where she decides she's going to cook her way through um Julia Child's um Julia Child's. Have I made that up? That's no, that no, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, is it just um, Child? Maybe singular. I don't know. I don't know. Um, her cooking, her French cooking book, and you know, for some people, having that list when everything else around them, their life is in chaos, they have that list of things that that structures life structures things for them is is actually really helpful and really anchoring and i can totally see Mm -hmm. how for some people that works really well Um, i love reading books about people doing reading challenges have i talked about phyllis rose's the shelf on here before i'm not sure i don't think i have but it sounds interesting Um, yeah so she i can't remember which library it is say let's say it's the new york public library or something she goes and thinks i'm just going to read every book on this shelf and it's about 30 books and she well she went trying to find a shelf that didn't have the same author too many times and that sort of thing and the book the shelf goes through her experiences of reading those it leads her off on all sorts of other tangents she goes to meet some of the authors she reads the same book in three different translations from the russian all sorts um wonderful book really liked it but yeah i wouldn't want to do that project but i loved reading about it I mean, I did that when I lived in New York 
Mm. I went to the public library and I read all the books on one shelf, but obviously I didn't have the you have made a book about to write it. a book about yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> who'd have thought that people would want to read that? <laughs> well, that's um, interesting because that's very unspontaneous. Yeah, well, again, because my life felt chaotic and I needed something, you know, mm. um, and it gave me a, a focus. Um, I also couldn't afford to buy books, so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, there was, was also a necessity. And I think as well, like when you go into a library and, um, you know, you're, you don't, I, mean, I, I did the same when I was at school, really, when I didn't, I didn't know what I should read or I didn't mm, know mm. how to find out what books were good. And I didn't, when I lived in New York, I didn't want to go into bookshops, uh, new bookshops to find out what was new or whatever, because I, I couldn't afford the temptation yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of it because I had no idea. I mean, when I moved to America, the difference in price between books in England and in America is mm. enormous. And, you know, you can easily buy a paperback book here for seven pounds brand new, but in America, that's no nearer $20. And that was, you know, a huge amount of money to oh, me at the time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was so poor, I couldn't take the subway and I was walking 60 blocks a day. So, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, there's a, it was a different environment. So when I went into the library, it was like, oh, and we didn't have smartphones then, you know, we didn't have the internet like we do now everywhere. So, this, <laughs> this sounding so vibrant and young here, actually. Yeah. I know, but this was 10 years ago, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It, no, smart people did have smartphones, but not everybody like we do now, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, I think the iPhone had just come out and it was expensive. So I, it's not like you could just look stuff up. So I was just like, well, you know, I'll pick up a book off the shelf and I'll read the back. And if it sounds good, I'll read it, you know, and it was a different, I think uh, we've lost something in being able to, to research everything to the nth degree. Like it, it makes you less likely to take a chance, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, and we talked before about how much we like those sorts of books from, you know, forties or earlier where, there's no no blurb because it's just an old hardback yeah. and you have no idea what's happening until you start it. You just read a couple of pages at the beginning and think, oh, this writing's good, I'll give it a try. Yeah, and I've found so many great books by, by just doing that. And I think if you're always looking for a particular name or for something that's been recommended, then you're not open to to trying something different or, or taking a chance on someone who you've not heard of. But you might dismiss even if you like the first couple of pages and think, oh, yeah, but I've not heard anything about this book or I've not had this recommended or it doesn't fit into my, you know, strategy of what I'm reading right now. So I think for me personally, it pays to be as open-minded as possible and open to whatever comes your way and also open to your mood and to mm -hmm. reading. I think I think reading sort of seasonally and reading and seasonally in the sense of, not just the literal seasons, but also in the terms of what season of your life you're in, um, you know, what you're going through at any given period of time and letting your letting yourself go towards whatever book speaks to you or whatever type of mm. novel speaks to you. Um, and I think that way you get more from what you're reading rather than reading something because you feel you ought to. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the current one I'm just about to start is August is always Women in Translation Month um, mm -hmm. in the blogging world, which obviously, again, is a, a very broad canvas. Yes. Um, I'm thinking it might be the time I finally read Sun City by Tevi Jansen that I, I bought a long time ago and I've been um, saving because I didn't want to run out of things for her to read. Well, I mean, anything by Tevi Jansen is always a joy. Yes, I didn't know why they haven't redone this one. We might have talked about this when we did the Tevianson episode, but it was published in the 70s or something. 
and then they've never republished the, the English translation. Interesting. Right. Who knows mm -hmm. why? Um, well, so spontaneous or planned? What are you going to choose? Well, you know, for me, it's always going to be spontaneous. It's how I live my life. <laughs> and I know you set this up as me doing more planned things, and it's true I do more, but I agree with you. Like, the purest pleasure is just thinking, I'm just going to go to the shelf and take what I like best for this moment and give it a go. So I, of the two, I'm also going to pick spontaneous. Oh, sure. I'm a bit surprised by that. I was expecting you to go different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't live my life entirely by spontaneity, but it's where I feel my truest self. <laughs> um, we have a question for the middle from Ooh. from Kate, who um, you listener may well know her as the blogger at Cross Examining Crime or Armchair Sleuth on Twitter. Um, she, I don't know how well we're going to be answer, going to be able to answer this, but let's try. She has asked okay. for, for the best of, or a favourite recommendation for a non English, non American crime writer. Non-English, non-American. Oh, yes, actually. Oh, okay. I can think of someone. Um, it depends what we define by crime, obviously. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I wouldn't say that this this person is uh, exclusively a crime writer, but the novel of hers that I've enjoyed the most was, was a crime novel. Mm. And um, I cannot remember her surname, so I'm just going to look that up while you fill in with a suggestion yourself. Okay. Well, I did struggle because I mostly read um, cosy crime uh, that as a genre. So I read Agatha Christie and then all the British Library crime classics that um, I give them a go. And I think most of them are either British. Oh, yes. Did you say English or British, Kate? I can't remember. But I imagine you're looking outside of those of Britain as well as England. Yeah. Um, um, but so the only one I could think of is the very uh, sort of obvious answer of Naya Marsh from New Zealand. Um, and I've only read um, one of hers, the title of which now completely escapes me. Oh, Opening Night, um, which I really enjoyed. But I don't think, I mean, I've meant, I've meant to read Simonon for a long time and I haven't. Um, oh, yes, I love Simonon. I read him in, um, this is going to sound really knobby, but I read him I read in him French. I read him in French. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, He's very good, and I love the the writing in French as well. It's very 1950s and it's very sparse. Um, and yeah, those are really good crime novels. And he's a very good uh, detective. Um, the person I was thinking, I've read Naya Marsh as well. I really enjoyed Vintage Murder. Um, I like the fact that a lot of she was a a member of um, she was an actress and she was a member of a travelling theatre street for a long time. And a lot of her her mystery uh, her crime novels center around that kind of yes opening night's really one of those yeah fun to to read stuff set in theaters and things and that all like the mm. rivalry of the cast um the one i was thinking of is drive your plow over the bones of the dead by oh Augustine. yeah oh is that is that crimey i didn't know that it is yeah it's um well i mean it's very interesting wonderful example of an unreliable narrator and it's about a woman who's um there's, you know, a spate of, of murders in her town and it appears that those murders have been have been done by an animal. Um and Ooh. gradually we uh we find out that that's not the case. Um but yes, it's very it's very, very good. Um really, really good in fact. And the translation is, is excellent. And I she won the Man Booker International Prize for Flights, which I also read and to Personally, I thought 
um, that drive the plough over the bones of the dead was better. And I might be lying, but I'm pretty sure she won the Pulitzer Prize for that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, hmm. it's really very good. Uh, yeah, the only other example I can think of is um, Where There's Love, There's Hate by Adolfo Boacazeras and Savina Ocampo, who I believe might have been married, um, yeah. which I did enjoy. It's very, it's, it, it is sort of, on the um, plot wise, it is a stereotypical murder mystery, but in terms of writing, it's very sort of eccentric and experimental. Um, right. So uh, I did enjoy it, but I always find I've read a few Adolfo Boacazeras things, and I always find I don't quite understand what's going on. <laughs> but, I'm wondering whether also Gabriel Gar- Garcia Marquez's um, Chronicle of a Death Foretold is cancer's oh, crime. I have not read but that. It's very good. She's a novella. Um, but I mean, it, it deals with the death. But I'm not sure whether you know it would count as as crime. But there is a sort of um, a crime to be unravelled. So, yeah, I enjoyed that as well. Hmm. Okay, we did better than that than I thought we might when I first saw the question. So, um, yeah, yeah. Kate Kate is an encyclopedic knowledge of crime, so I'm sure she knows those authors. But um, but maybe some maybe some tips for other people. Yes. Hello, it's Editing Simon jumping in here to say that in this section we do give some spoilers that we didn't flag up, particularly for Thank Heaven Fasting. So if that's a concern, then maybe be a bit cautious as you go into this. Uh, whilst I'm here, I'll say many thanks to people who support the podcast at Patreon. I'm going to give you a little rattle off of names. Liana, Randy, Elizabeth, Courtney, Fareed, Harry, Heather, Heidi, Karen, Martin, Mindy, Monica, Richard... Um, and others, but I thought I'd give a little longer list than normal of people who support at patreon.com forward slash books. Really appreciate it. You can get various different bonus bits and benefits and things there, as well as just helping us out. Uh, you can find a list of all the books mentioned in this episode at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. And now I'm going to hand back to past Simon. Bye. Um, and on to our beloved Ian Delafield for the Indeed. final section. Um, please pick one of these to introduce us to. Um, well, I'll let you introduce Tension as that's your um, one of oh, your baby. British libraries, <laughs> and I'll do um, uh, the other one. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I have just finished reading up. it. It's fine. I've, I have actually <laughs> read it. Um, um, yeah, you go first. Lovely. So Tension uh, is the. It's about a couple of things, I guess, but what, um, the tension really comes from the idea of this new woman who started working at a, a college uh, called Miss Marchrose, who Lady Rossiter, the sort of um, gossip slash antagonist of the novel, uh, thinks correctly might be a woman who previously broke off an engagement with her nephew. I think that's right. Um, and she starts rumour-mongering about this woman. She starts... Um, trying to cause trouble and thinks that she might be doing the same with a with a man who is married but his wife is um an alcoholic who's in some sort of asylum so uh, there's lots of rumors about adultery going on there it's also about uh a woman who comes to town who's written a book called why ben a story of the sexes i think <laughs> which i think is just the most wonderful fake title <laughs> just love that so much um there were also a bunch of obnoxious children. Uh, Lady Rossiter has a husband who is much more sympathetic, but also useless. So um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting cast of characters. I think it's really funny and really distressing at the same time, as Ian Delafield often can be. 
Mm. And there are various different tensions in the novel that might be tensions. So it's from 1920. It's one of her first books, maybe her, maybe her fourth book, I think. Oh, I didn't realise it was as early as that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank Kevin Hursting. Go for it. So this is the story of Monica. And she, at the beginning of the novel, is very young. The novel's split into three sections. So the first novel, uh, part of the novel, is, is her coming out. And she, the, it's not clearly stated in the novel when it's set, but it's it's clearly pre-World War One, but only just because they've got cars and um, and her how her mother she's her own the only child of her parents who are very upper middle class they've got a very nice house in london and everything else and about how she has been basically been brought up to to please men and to to make a marriage and that's all of her her mother's hopes are pinned on that and um when she has her coming out ball and everything else the focus is on how will she attract a man? Will she be successful? You know, it's considered to be the ultimate if you manage to get engaged in your first season. Um, and then we see her first experiences of, of men and, um, the, the various difficulties she faces. Um, she falls in love with somebody who is very clear to see as the reader is a very much a, a Mr. Wickham. Um, <laughs> and is, is certainly not got marriage in mind, but in her naivety and the protection that she's always been placed in under by her parents, she's never really been able to make decisions for herself. So she makes a poor decision and we see. Um, how that goes on to affect her and as the years go by and she um, doesn't manage to snare a man um, how the world is very unkind and challenging to girls at that time um, who don't manage to to make a match so yeah it's um, a very interesting exploration of what I would imagine would have been Ian Delafield's own upbringing in many ways yes I think you're right because as you say it doesn't give the time but it Mm -hmm. it must be Edwardian, I guess, based on the, yeah. the outfits and because yeah. I think a lot, it was published in the mid thirties, and quite a lot of people I've seen talk about it seem to think it was set in the mid thirties, which it certainly is not. So, no. um, yes, um, seems things have already changed quite substantially by then. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I th- um, oh, yeah. oh no, you go ahead. And I was just going to ask when you first read these two. So uh, the Thank Heaven Fasting I first read years ago. Um, and I remember very much enjoying it and I very much enjoyed it again on my reread. Um, and Tension, I, I just re- literally just read from the podcast. Thank you very much for sending me a copy. Mm, you're welcome. Um, I've now lent it to my mum. I think she will enjoy it. Mm. And I was actually, I, I thought that Tension felt like one of her later novels actually. So I was mm. really surprised because it felt very, um, accomplished and both of these novels i think are quite interesting in that they they both deal with the limitations of women's lives in in very different ways you see mm. intention the marriage between lady roster and her husband is is essentially a marriage of convenience for both of them and how lady roster was actually in very much in monica's position in um in St. Kevin Fasting, in that she'd reached the age of 28 and she hadn't got married. And Sir Julian Roster met her. He was lonely and he said he would marry her in order to rescue her from the situation. So she ends up marrying. Um, and 
that marriage is very unhappy for both of them. And the one of the reasons why she she meddles so much in the situation and I think perhaps resents um what's her name? Miss Marchrose. Uh, Miss Marchrose, thank yeah. you. Is because she has not experienced happiness herself and it's kind of stunted her emotionally and made her into a busybody because that's her only outfit in life. She doesn't have another role. And um, in some ways, I think what frightens me at the end of Thank Heaven Fasting is even though Monica ends up getting a happy ending uh, in quote unquote, um, will her marriage end up being like the Rusters, I wonder? Yeah, their marriage really reminds me of Mr. and Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice as well. Mm. That um, his lack of respect for her as a person, but also his weakness in stopping her making herself ridiculous. Although she's more malevolent than Mrs. Bennett. Mm. Although having said that, it comes from a, a place where she thinks she's doing the right thing, and it seems genuinely that Lady Rossiter believes that she's doing the right thing. Um, she's very protective of Mark Easter. Um, I mean, she's certainly enjoying doing it and doesn't seem to, you know, the fact that it's hurting people doesn't bother her particularly, but I don't think it's, she's not doing it primarily malevolently, I think. Um, she's just upholding, as you say, the 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 way that women were treated at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, it, I, think, I agree with you. It's very accomplished in that it's, some of her books are very funny, some of her books are very sombre, and this one I think is both, um, in that I everything about the kids and how much how objectionable everyone finds them i loved reading (laughs) i loved uh iris and her terrible sounding book um i did in my afterward i had a little drive by uh (laughs) slagging off mary webb that i was a bit (laughs) worried about (laughs) couldn't help myself but it sounds like it's that sort of like rural novel um Whereas Thank Heaven Fasting, um, so I read them both about 2005. I had forgotten everything about Tension until I reread it uh, as a consideration for the British Library series. Thank Heaven Fasting had stayed in my head more. And I think that's because it's got that perfect singularity of of narrative in that the whole thing is about, is about will Monica get married? There's not mm. really any subplots there's, or anyone else who comes to the fore. You see those other two daughters of a different family who... Yeah a bit older than her and and sort of the specter of what her life might become as they go away from, from London. The thing I found really sad was the way that people made excuses for, um, they think, Oh, Oh, you, yeah, we don't come to London as much. We just don't like her or we need to look after, uh, our parents or any sort of these sorts of things that you're saying to try and maintain their dignity about why they haven't been chosen, but also recognizing that nobody buys into those for a moment. Um, so such a savage, uh, heart, heartbreaking world, I guess, for uh, the the girls who are left on the shelf at what twenty one or something. Yeah. Because um, I think we're probably the same age as the mother at the outside outside of this novel. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think she wrote that really beautifully, and it wasn't. I think it could have been a much more histrionic novel in another author's hands or even in, if she'd written it earlier in her career um but it's a, i think it's really a real su- really subtle way of showing how devastating it was and i think I mean, we've given the spoiler away now the fact that she does get married at the end but it's clearly not great um is so much more devastating than if she'd stayed single at the end because it's so clever the way that she think i can't remember exactly how it ends it's such a 
see if I can find it. Such a powerful um, ending, the way that she's talking about the freedom f from fighting. Um, oh, here we go. There was no further need to be afraid or ashamed or anxious anymore. Nothing about, I love this man, or I'm looking forward to being his wife, or yeah. it's going to be a wonderful marriage, but just like this waiting is over. And that was, yeah. And that's last, that last page, not the exact words, but that feeling had stayed with me ever since I first read it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so tragic in thinking about how it's frequently referenced in the book that these girls were brought up for one purpose and one purpose only. And if they didn't achieve that, there was nothing else for them to do. So they're yeah. kind of condemned to these lives of misery and being stifled in every corner, being pitied. And they're like, I remember there's a line in there where Cicely, one of their friends, um, says, well, you know, it's, it's not even as if, um, girls of our class, we, you know, we, we can't even go and, and get a job because, mm. you know, we'd be mixing with people that we shouldn't be and all of those kind of rules surrounding it, which means that they can't save themselves. And also, even, she said, well, we could get a job, but like, what would they do? They don't have any skills. Yeah. yeah. Um, all they know how to do is play the piano and that's it. Um, and, and if they were a bit higher class or a bit lower class, then they would, wouldn't have. They could have done something else, like exactly. Or it, yeah, but they're in that bit in between. Yeah, so it's um, it's really eye opening to the situation that so many girls were in, and that her mother is such a wonderful, wonderfully realised character. Mm -hmm. Everything that she says, and um, I thought the dialogue was just brilliant, and the way that her mother speaks about everyone else and you know well you will never be like that my darling um and the way the fact that they never speak about it her and her mother mm, never mm. mention it it's something that they don't talk about they both know it but they can't that's all they're thinking about it. but yeah, yeah yeah you know every time monica goes anywhere or comes back from anywhere her mother her mother's question is always oh and um you know was there anybody and it's like of any the, use yeah. of any use and that's yeah. the phrase, you know, and, and there's no point her doing anything unless it's going to lead to her meeting somebody. Otherwise, you know, anything that doesn't do that is just depicted by her mother as being not of any use. Mm -hmm. Like everything in life is, is built around that one aim. And there's no real. And it's interesting as well, you know, that when um, I mean, we're just spoiling the whole plot of the book. Sorry. <laughs> um, sorry. Her, when her father dies and her mother sort of goes into these hysterics and says, you know, my life is over. My life is over. I've got nothing else to live for now. And, you know, she's not even 40. And to think that, mm. you know, well, she's bringing her daughter up to have exactly that same fate that she's got. Mm. And she doesn't see that at all. And none of them see it. And like, they don't see any point in feminism or suffrage or being, uh, or suffrage or anything. Something that I want to bring up actually is because in both of these novels, particularly Tension, but also in a lot of India Field's other novels like Faster Faster and The War Workers, um, the main antagonist is a woman. Um, and she often seemed to go back to the slightly, um, I guess the unfeminist woman as, as the villain. And it made me think, uh, I mean, Ian Field was feminist and you're thinking, why are there so many unsympathetic women? And it's, I guess it's largely they are representing uh, the standards of the culture they're in. And that's sort of the point. Um, but it did feel, it does feel every time I come back, I think, why is there another villainous woman? Uh, what's the point she's making? Is it that people weren't aware enough to, um, I guess, be kind to their own sex or, 
I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think there's an element of of her being a bit like you know we're our own worst enemy here. We don't support each other, and I think there's also an element of realism there. I mean, it's about you know these women have internalised the patriarchy, haven't they? They've spent their whole lives being told that their only value mm. is through the eyes of men. So why would you think any differently? Why wouldn't you pity other women who who don't have partners? Why wouldn't you? Um, not want to have political power when you think that but my power is is through men therefore if i'm attractive to men and i manage to have a man and i have power then i i don't want that power that i have through men to be taken away so i think that's interesting. Oh, sorry. no go ahead yeah as i say it's interesting saying these the um the, the girls and thank heaven fasting aren't capable of doing anything miss martres obviously is very capable mm. it was it was interesting seeing a woman uh, having a career, I guess. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think, again, part of Lady Rossiter's dislike of her is because of that. I think there's definitely a jealousy there. Um, mm. There's a vindictiveness about Lady Rossiter's character, but I think something that I, I find so interesting about Ian Delafield is that she writes people who so well, people who are so blind to their own faults, and Lady yes, Rossiter yes. is completely blind to... to her behaviour, she's completely blind to the manipulative and a really vicious way in which she behaves. And um, Monica's mother is exactly the same. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, right. That is her, her, in whether for comic effect or the opposite, she's so good at people who don't have self awareness. Yeah. yeah, and there's there's a real um, exploration in here of of women. And what I love about her books is that she's she shows women as being three-dimensional characters, as being very different to each other, as some women are horrible, some women are lovely. You know, there's there's no stereotyping here. This is the reality. I mean, women aren't perfect. Men aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. And so often in novels that you read, women are stereotypes. And in mm. E.M. Delafield's novels, they are they're just real you know some women are stupid some women do make ridiculous choices some people are selfish and vindictive and nasty that's just how they are and they should be depicted in that way um and i think she's a wonderful writer of women she's also a wonderful writer of men i mean the passivity mm -hmm. of those male characters in tension was driving me insane um and yeah, yeah. you know there's that what frustrated me is that nobody stood up for um miss martrose nobody really put stuck there i mean there was some ineffectual stuff from the chancellor of the college mm, mm. um but otherwise it's like so julian knows that she's being treated terribly but does nothing about it doesn't bother saying anything to his wife he's just sort of yeah. given up and um the guy that she's uh, what's his name mark mark thank you i'm terrible at remembering names um <laughs> you know he's clearly got no intention of of you know making a a permanent commitment um, oh he's weak all right it's like he's, he's weak already. like no control over the children no, no yeah. he's completely weak as water does absolutely nothing that takes no control over his own life and yet you know it's all her fault and yeah what you know is showing isn't she is that men can be weak and still yeah. be successful and fine in this world whereas yeah. any any weakness in the woman is you know savaged yeah I mean, um, she's so good at highlighting um, gender inequality and so before her time, really. And mm. I wish that she were more widely read.
because the, all the stuff that she shows in her book, sadly, not much has changed. And it's always done through character and plot rather than like stopping to give a lecture or anything. It's exactly. Really, really clever. Right. I mean, yeah. there's, there's never any sense of we're being told, uh, you know, having been banged around the head by her political beliefs or her social beliefs or whatever. It's, it's, it's just given to us through the characters. Yeah. yeah. And I've been saying, I've, I find it really funny. I'm just wondering, did you also find it funny? Because I had a conversation with the editor at the British Library about some blurb copy, and I thought, we haven't made it sound funny. And she said, well, I don't think it is funny. I was like, oh, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> so I'm intrigued. I don't think I would say I found it funny. I think, I mean, there were moments when I laughed, but I found it frustrating more than I found it funny. And like, again, mm. there were moments in Thank Heaven Fasting I found very funny, some of the dialogue and everything. But uh, again, on the whole, I wouldn't call them comic novels. Interesting. Yeah, I think tension sort of lured me in with that very funny opening scene mm. and then sort of pulls the rug under your under my feet, I guess, but continue to have comic moments. I loved everything with Iris and her, her storyline and um, her weird sort of bohemian fiancé who turned out not yeah. to be that bohemian <laughs> after all. But, um, yeah, those two were ridiculous. We won't spoil it, but the only thing that I don't love about tension is the ending does feel a bit sort of bolted on. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, I did think that too. Um, it's a bit like, oh, is that it? Now we need to finish, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, is the opposite is true of Thank Him for Fasting. As we said, I think the ending is the, the strongest part of the whole book. Mm. No, it's very stark, that ending. Um, right, choice time. Which are you going to pick? Well, do you know what? I think for me, um, Thank Heaven Fasting is a really, really brilliant book. And I, as much as I thought both of them are very good, I think Thank Heaven Fasting for me is a better constructed and better characterised novel. So that's what I would go for. Yeah, I think these are right, both right up there amongst my favourites of hers. I think I'm just I'm going to pick tension because I think it, um, I think because it makes me laugh as well as having all the serious stuff. And thank heaven, fasting. I thought, yeah, as I said, that wonderful single focus on a story, but there was maybe more variety in tension. Mm. Let's go for that. Okay. Lovely. Uh, we're back to the Persephone shelves for the next episode. Oh yeah. We, yeah, we will be comparing the Crowded Street by Winifred Holtby with Brooke Evans by Susan Glassmore. Yes. I'm very much looking forward to doing some rereading. Yeah, you've read, you've read those both already, haven't you? I've not uh -huh. read either of them yet. So. Oh, you're in for a treat. Fab. Right. Thanks Great. for listening, everyone. Thanks, everyone.